Happy Thursday, everyone. Thank you for listening. This is the Scrub Life Podcast. My name is Chris Blevins, and I am the Tarrant County College Surgical Technology Program um, Clinical Coordinator. And this episode continues a series done by our class of 2018. These students are set to graduate very soon. Um, A little bit of senioritis, if I do say so myself, but they're doing really well. Um, This episode is going to feature work done by Haley, Michaela, and Marissa. So without further ado, here we go. My name is Michaela. I'm Haley. I'm Marissa. And can you introduce yourself for us? I'm Jennifer Donnelly Strzok. I'm a physical medicine and rehab doctor. All right, and what, it is, what is it that you do for Spine Team? So I do a couple different things. I see clinic patients, so if they have neck or back issues, we see them for that. Um, I do nerve testing in the clinic, so that's called an EMG and nerve conduction studies. Um, that basically assesses if a patient has nerve damage that's coming either from their spine. Um, for our purposes, that's really important if we're going to operate on them. Um, or if they have something like carpal tunnel syndrome, or if they have... Any other, <laughs> any other possible nerve damage. Um, there's multiple different areas in the arm or in the leg that you can pinch a nerve. Um, so we have to rule that out or rule it in if we're going to operate on somebody. Um, the other thing that I do is surgical neuromonitoring. So uh, we have patients that when anytime we operate on them, um, no matter really what the procedure is, if they're having surgery, we basically do the same thing. We check their nerve function throughout the entire surgery to make sure that the surgeon doesn't get too close to a nerve, um, cause damage to the spinal cord, um, even sometimes positionally when they tape people down when they're trying to get everybody set up for surgery, sometimes you can actually use too much tape and put pressure on a nerve and cause nerve damage. <laughs> so we can catch those kinds of things. Um, and so what I do is I, I basically have a tech in the room that does all the setup for me, and then I have a live feed with that tech, so I watch a computer screen. We have a chat window that we chat back and forth. So if there's problems or if there's something that looks abnormal on the study um, while we're running it, and that runs the whole time. So it's not like you do one little stimulation and then you're done. It keeps going through the whole case. So every couple minutes it recycles, it starts again. Um, and we do some different testing depending on what the surgery is. Um, but I kind of communicate back and forth with the tech. Hey, if I wanted to do you know, a different test or I wanted to look at something else or if something changes during the case and we have to troubleshoot and figure out why that is. Um, nine times out of ten, that's because something gets moved during the surgery. <laughs> and so something falls out or, like, something gets unhooked. And nine times out of ten, that's usually the issue. So how did you get started in this field of study? So I um, so I got into PM&R because when I was a freshman in college, I went to UT and I volunteered um, at HealthSouth, which is a rehab hospital that was nearby. I knew I wanted to go to med school. I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I volunteered at this rehab hospital, and I basically just kind of hung out in the therapy gym and helped the aides and the techs and everything else. And um, I, I, that's where I was first kind of introduced to it. And so then when I got into medical school, PM&R is not really a field that anybody really knows. <laughs> so, um, so when I was in med school, I was actually thinking about doing pediatrics, and I... I had some interest in PMNR because I really like sports, and so I was kind of like, maybe I'll do something sports medicine related. Um, PMNR is a very, very big field. There's a lot of like subspecialties to it, so sports medicine actually happens to be one of those subspecialties. So I was talking to a mentor of mine, and I said, I think I'm going to do PMNR, maybe peds, and he goes, why don't you do PMNR? And if you really like it, you can go back and do peds, because mm-hmm. um, PMNR is a four-year residency. So. 
Um, I did a couple rotations as a uh, med student still in PM&R and got interested in there and then kind of just went ahead and decided to do it. So um, PM&R is, is a four-year residency, but you have to do a separate internship. So you do a year. Sometimes it's the, the same place where you do your residency. Sometimes it's not. Most programs are kind of still separated. So I did a year internship at JPS in Fort Worth mm -hmm. and then did my residency at Emory in Atlanta. So, cool. yeah. So how long have you been doing outside of uh, your residency and everything? How long have you been doing this? Almost eight years. Okay. Um, is there anything besides, I know a lot of people are like, oh, my favorite thing is obviously helping people. Besides that, what is your, <laughs> besides the go-to answer, what is your favorite thing about uh, um, this? You know, it's a little different, so it's a little different for different things, right? Sure. So the clinic part I really like because I like having a continuity of care. I like getting to know my patients. You know, mm -hmm. spine is an area where, and it, not always, but, you know, a lot of times people don't show, hurt their back once and then life mm -hmm. is good forever. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of patients I know a lot about. <laughs> um, I can tell you about their kids. They can probably tell you about my kids. And so I like having that kind of a relationship with mm -hmm. my patients. Um not all fields of medicine allow for that. Right. Um, the nerve testing I like because it's investigative. So I like that mm -hmm. when you do a nerve test, you, you're really trying to figure out is there something wrong or not, and you kind of can you know, whittle it down to really get a good, clear diagnosis. And it's really one of the only tests you can do um, to actually define nerve damage. And so okay. it's kind can of Can you funny. talk a little bit more about the nerve testing and mm -hmm. how that works? Mm -hmm. So when we do nerve testing in the clinic, um, it's obviously the setup is a little bit different. So right. we have a machine uh, that's hooked up basically to a laptop, and it has a stimulator that's attached to it. And so we basically send little milliamps of stimulation to somebody's arm or leg. And what happens is you have kind of certain setup points. You send the stimulation. It goes up. It comes back down. You look to see essentially how fast that nerve traveled. And if there's any slowing, that's where you start worrying about damage and those sorts of things. So that's kind of the first part. Um, for most patients, it's fairly tolerable. It can be a little uncomfortable because when we test, so when we test sensory nerves, we do it at a lower stimulation. It's easier to get a sensory nerve. When you test motor nerves, you have to kind of crank it up a little bit. And so sometimes you'll see their kind of arm or leg jump or jerk. They don't love that. But most people will say it just feels really weird um, versus, no, people don't necessarily, it's painful. Um, the people I have the most trouble when they do this is an electrician because when your biggest fear in your job is being shocked oh. and then you get shocked, that makes sense. Yeah. It's really horrible. Yeah. And those are really the only patients that I've seen who kind of really struggle like with it. it. Yeah. Um, the second part of the test, then we go in and we use a, a needle basically. Um, it's a very small needle. It's similar to what they use for acupuncture. Mm -hmm. um, when you have an injection, you have a needle that's hollow because the medicine has to go through it. When we do the EMGs, we use a solid needle, and so it doesn't take as much tissue with it. Mm. Not that it's not painful, but it goes in a lot easier for patients. And so typically for a, a good full study, you'll usually check five or six muscles in one of the limbs that you're looking at. And so what happens with that is you basically want to test the muscle when it's at rest, and you want to test the muscle when it's activated. So we always almost... I, this is how I do it. I usually start with the muscle at rest, um, unless they're kind of already freaking out and moving <laughs> around. Um, and then you look to see when a muscle's at rest, you shouldn't see any activity in it, unless I'm moving the needle and getting a reading from it. Mm -hmm. And what that reading looks like is a bunch of little waveforms on a screen. And so then we have them activate the muscle, and there's a particular pattern you're looking at to see when they activate the muscle, how does it respond. And there's a normal pattern, and then there's obviously an abnormal pattern. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes an abnormal pattern can indicate whether it's more of a muscle issue or whether it's more of a nerve type of issue. It can also indicate if it's an old injury versus a new injury. So oh, wow. when the nerve comes down, so for somebody who has normal nerve function, the nerve comes down, it supplies the muscle. 
Um, if somebody's had an old injury, a lot of times what will happen is that nerve will start to uh, basically sprout collateral branches to get to the muscle mm-hmm. so it can help still make the muscle work. Mm-hmm. may not work as well, but it's still <laughs> trying to make that muscle work. And so you can see that on what we call a recruitment pattern, and that's when you're trying to get them to activate the muscle and you look on these little waveforms on the screen. So that's kind of how the, um, the in-clinic one works. Okay. The um, <laughs> neuromonitoring one gets a little, a little trickier. Um, so in the setup for that, we actually have, uh, we do something called SSEPs, which is a somatosensory evoked potential. And that's basically where we send signals, um, and we do this every, usually every one to two minutes for the arms and for the legs. Um, and so it cycles through after a certain time. Um, and when we do that, we're basically trying to check the sensory portion or the anterior portion of the spinal cord to make sure it's still functional. Um, so that's not necessarily checking the motor part. Um, the EMG part, we actually have a needle that just stays in the muscle the whole time. So instead, you know, when I do it here in clinic, I take it out and I move it around. Mm-hmm. Um, there we have needles that stay in those particular mm-hmm. muscles through the whole case. So if we're doing um, a uh, neck case, we'll have them in the arms. And mm-hmm. if we're doing a back case, we usually do them in the legs. We have certain muscles that we use for each nerve level. Um, the one other thing we'll do, um, we usually do this more for cervical surgeries is that we'll actually test kind of a motor response too. Um, we can't run that the whole time because it makes the patient jerk. And if you're in the surgery yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're like standing right by their cervical spinal cord, you really don't want yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So there are ports, uh, portions, I should say, of the test that we'll do kind of around parts of the case. So we always get a baseline one before we start the case. Um, we usually try to do one and it depends a little bit, but we usually try to do one before if they're doing like a graft, meaning they're putting uh, kind of a fusion bone in there um, or plate or something like that. We'll try to do it when they're doing the test for it, and then we'll try to do it right afterwards. Those motor responses should still look the same, and they should in some cases look better because sometimes you don't have them, and you're like, oh, this is really not good. Um, and then after they open up the spinal cord, they give that patient some room, those motor responses show up. So it's kind of cool. That's cool. Um, and that you can see pretty, pretty quickly after the graft is placed. Um, and so we do that depending on however many levels that we're doing surgically. We do that mm-hmm. usually kind of around that trial and then right afterwards. Okay. So, so in, in the case of an emergency, like mm-hmm. let's say, you know, they do, you know, irritate or anything like in the nerve, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you said you, you were on a chat with a tech. Do mm-hmm. you actually actually come into the OR sometimes? And I don't typically. So you usually? I don't typically, okay. yeah. So what will happen in most cases um, if there's an abnormality, what you'll usually see, so if they get kind of close to the nerve, um, you'll see an EMG burst. So you'll see some abnormality that will kind of spike up on our EMG mm-hmm. screen. And um, when that happens, typically the tech notifies the surgeon immediately. And, you know, especially if they're right there in that area, you're like, hey, you might be a little close at L5, but <laughs> yeah. you might want to back off a little. <laughs> um, so we tell the surgeon pretty quickly. If it keeps firing, then we keep kind of communicating with the surgeon. But, you know, usually when that happens, the tech goes, hey, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. All right, here's what we need to do. And we put a plan in pretty fast. I mean, you okay. try not to obviously delay on these kinds of things. Right, right. <laughs> um, just like if you see signals drop. Um, now, I will say this, and I didn't say this earlier, um, anesthesia also affects those those mm. sensory signals that I was mentioning before. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if they have certain types of gases, will make those signals drop. So we get baselines at the beginning, and as long as the waveforms look roughly the same, even if they're diminished, mm-hmm. um, we usually are okay with that especially when the gas is really high. If you know the gas is high, you go, okay, this is clearly dropping because of that. But if all of a sudden you have no signals, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen often, thank goodness. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, really, I have had that happen 
and it's been a technical error. It's been oh, one wow. of the cords just stopped working. And you're <laughs> like, oh, this is really great timing for this. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and my tech was able to figure it out pretty quickly, fortunately, and we had a backup cord that unfortunately put her like right next to the patient. But, um, but yeah, we communicate pretty quickly back and forth. So my tech is kind of my eyes and ears into the OR. And, you know, sometimes and most of the time, what I will always ask them if they see something abnormal is, did you check all your equipment? Because mm-hmm. like I said, nine times out of 10, that's the biggest problem. Okay. Now we get that too as techs. Like, you know, did you check the equipment? Is, is something plugged in or is right. it me? Mm-hmm. Something nine times, yeah. nine yeah. times out of ten, the it's the equipment. Yeah. It is the equipment. Something fails, something falls out, you know, when they're repositioning in surgeries. And, and the other thing, too, sometimes we do cases where we start on one side and we flip the yeah. patient over. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when things fall out, you go, <laughs> hmm, okay. Yeah. So you reset your baselines and kind of get what you need out of that. Okay. Is there, um, like, a predominant kind of population that you see more often or not with, um, that you have to, like, neuromonitor here in the clinics more Uh, often than not, or? You know, I don't, I I don't, I don't think so, because, you know, so when I neuromonitor, I do for all across all of our offices, and you guys know we have a zillion offices, so, (laughs) um, so I monitor cases here, I monitor cases that are in Rockwell, I monitor cases that are in Allen, Mm -hmm. um, and I think the patient population is pretty diverse among all those. Pretty widespread? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I um, I did a lot of my residency at the VA in Atlanta, and mm-hmm. I will tell you that is, that's a tough population because a lot of those men and women have injuries from multiple different things. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when you do EMGs on those patients, you were happy to see a normal one because you hardly <laughs> ever saw a normal one. You're like, oh, this is what normal looks like? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Which is, it's a good thing to learn from because, you you know, you learn how to pick up pathology. Mm-hmm. Um but here we see way more normal than we see abnormal. I will tell you that. So in that instance, do you actually refer them to surgeons, you know, to have surgery to correct those issues in the nervous system? Yeah, so it depends on what it is. So mm-hmm. if you've got somebody who's got, say, like carpal tunnel syndrome that I pick up on an EMG, yeah, I mean, and, and there's various degrees of that. So we grade it as mild, moderate, or severe, and, and there's certainly then treatment algorithms that go into it. But if, if I've got somebody who's got carpal tunnel and it's affecting their function and, you know, them being able to write or, you mm-hmm. know, they're dropping things all the time, those people all send a hand surgeon. So those aren't cases that we mm-hmm. obviously do. But I still get patients that come in here all the time that have neck pain, but then they've also got this numbness and tingling. Mm-hmm. And so that's why this test is helpful because you can kind of, you know, try to eliminate, okay, is the neck really causing any problems? Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes it's not that clear. So sometimes they st- you still see all this stuff on their neck, mm-hmm. but then they've got carpal tunnel. You're like, <laughs> all right. And so you have to kind of tease out, does it seem from a surgical standpoint, or even from a, you know, where is their pain standpoint, what what the bigger issue is, right? Mm-hmm. So if I've got somebody that's got really bad carpal tunnel, I'll still probably try to treat their neck, but I'm still going to send them to a hand surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I've got somebody who I see in clinic as a patient and they're weak and I'm really worried that, the, the you know, they've got a big disc herniation that's putting pressure mm-hmm. on the nerve, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to get that EMG done very quickly and get them in with one eye surgeons. Okay. Most of the spine surgeries that we do, not all of them, but... A good portion of them are actually considered more elective cases. They don't have to be done, but they're done because people, you know, their function is limited. They have a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, we try a lot of the conservative stuff, and we can't get them better. Mm-hmm. Um, more of the emergent cases are when somebody comes in with, like, a foot drop or they're, you know, dragging their foot and it's mm-hmm. flopping on the ground. So um, in those cases, obviously, we're, we're much more aggressive with those because when you start worrying about somebody developing a permanent, you know, neurologic deficit. Right. You want to be aggressive with that. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you can catch it early. Sometimes you catch it, somebody comes in, they've had it for a week, 
those are better cases. Yeah. Sometimes somebody comes in, they go, well, for like the last six months, you know, this has been happening. And I'm like, Ugh. okay. So those are a little more challenging, but we try to catch those neurologic type deficits like that as quick as we can. Um, myelopathy is another big one. So if somebody's cord, you know, has, um, some signal change and their balance is affected, I check balance in every single patient of mine, even if they're here for low back pain. I always check their balance, and we have them do a tandem gait just to see kind of what that looks like. Um, I always ask about balance. you feel like your balance has been off? Have you had any falls? You know, I ask family members, too, like, do you feel like they're kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> one side or the other? Um, and so, you know, that's really that's really important for us because if you miss myelopathy, I mean, that's a huge, huge deal. Right. Um, for our purposes with myelopathy, a lot of times we need to, it's because somebody has stenosis or something that's really pushing back near the cord, and so we need to get in there and kind of open that up and give it some space. Okay. So. Has there ever been a case that's been particularly difficult, like you just couldn't really pinpoint what was causing? I, I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> daily? Which one? Um, <laughs> so daily. Um, no, I mean, you know, I don't know that there's been one case. There are definitely some that... Not everything presents textbook, right? So there, there are the nice cases when somebody yeah. comes in and they come in and they go, well, my pain goes just like this. It follows this L5 pattern. We were to the MRI. There's a disc pushing right on it. And they're like, ah, oh, this is so easy. I know what to do with this. But, you know, then there are those ones that are more challenging. And when you get into looking at things, you know, there's a lot of comorbidities that come with people having spine issues. There's anxiety. There's depression. There is looking at their personal lives because a lot of times there are other factors that, kind of influence things when people don't sleep it perpetuates pain mm-hmm. um so i ask about sleep for a lot of my patients um you know when you've got people with things like fibromyalgia it's more difficult to treat sometimes i have some patients who can tell me well this is my fibromyalgia symptom this is not and mm-hmm. and some people really understand their disease well enough to be able to do that not mm-hmm. everybody does right you know um those cases are harder because when you have somebody who has something like and, and i have a couple of patients with ms mm-hmm. you know we have somebody that has something mm-hmm. like ms and fibromyalgia and you're going okay, well, I see, sort of see something here, and you're trying to make a case to try to find a way to help make them better. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that kind of stuff is a little bit more challenging when there's multiple issues. The other hard part is when you have somebody that has a lot of comorbidities, and so you're kind of sitting there going, well, I don't really even know what I can do for this person, Mm -hmm. and and you feel bad, and so we try to come up with different options and things, like some people acupuncture sometimes, some people Pilates. Like, I try to find... Other things versus saying, okay, well, all you have is a shot or surgery, and that's mm-hmm. it. Right. So we try to be, you know, creative and look into other options like that. That's Sometimes awesome. you have to be. Mm-hmm. What is the common surgery that you recommend for people, like, with just who come in and say, I have back pain or whatever? Like, what is, what is no it surgery. that they <laughs> yeah, I recommend no surgery. Um, so I'll tell you this. Most people, if they just have neck pain or just back pain without anything coming into their arms or legs mm-hmm. or any other neurologic, true neurologic dysfunction, um, most people do not need surgery. Um, the majority of the time, you know, if we do surgery on people, it's typically because they have either some kind of neurologic deficit, like I said, or they've got just really bad radicular pain kind of shooting down into their arm or their leg. Um, probably the most common case we do, and probably the most straightforward, minimally invasive case we do, is something called a minimally invasive microdiscectomy. Um, and that's a case where basically they go in, they make a really small incision. They work through a little tube that's about mm-hmm. that big. Um, and they go in and they, they essentially just kind of shave off a piece of the disc to get it out of the way or kind of cut off a piece of the disc mm-hmm. to get it out of the way. The nice part about that surgery, um, well, there's a couple good things. One, it's minimally invasive, so you don't have a big, giant scar. Mm-hmm. Um, two is that what they used to do, so what, I don't even have one here, I don't think. Um, what they used to do is they would take off the lamina on the back. And so mm-hmm. they would do what's called a hemilaminectomy where they take off half that lamina and leave the other half. Those lamina are like the roof to your house, though. So if you take off half, 
it creates this instability. Mm-hmm. What they do now is they basically just make a little tiny window in the bone so they can kind of mm-hmm. sneak underneath the bone to get down to the disc. Okay. So you still have the majority of the bone intact so you don't create that same type of instability. The other good part is that they leave the big chunk of the disc intact. So that mm-hmm. chunk that's kind of sitting there in the front, they leave. They just get the piece that's causing problems. So Your there's nerves, no need for, like, an implant or anything like an ACDF or anything no, like that? No, not typically. Not okay. typically. You know, and, and when they do cervical surgeries, the problem is the discs are so much smaller. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they do wind up having to do some form of fusion or something like that. We try to hardly ever do fusions if we can help it in the low back. Okay. You know, once you fuse things, everything above yeah. it, below it, right. moves differently. So then mm-hmm. it creates, you know, mechanically other a bunch problems. of other problems. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably what happened you know, 15, 20 years ago is they fused everybody and then mm-hmm. everybody comes in and then they've got all these other problems and they've had like five surgeries and you're like, uh, we should really stop this. Yeah. So, you know, some of that is a challenge. I mean, there's a lot of failed back surgeries out there because people yeah. had fusions when they probably didn't need to have them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. so I know like sciatic nerve pain is a common for a lot of people. Do mm-hmm. you get a lot of that? And I do. So sometimes I think sciatica gets a little misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the sciatic trunk as it sits in your buttock and gets mm-hmm. compressed, that's true sciatica. It shoots right down the backside of your leg. Mm-hmm. I see that a very small percentage of the time. Oh, really? okay. What I see more is nerve pain that comes from the nerve roots higher up. Mm-hmm. Okay. The S1 nerve, for example, if it gets pinched on, it shoots down the backside of your leg just like sciatica. But everybody just uses the term mm-hmm. sciatica. Right. Mm-hmm. Uses the term radicular pain or radiculopathy because mm-hmm. that, or radiculitis. Um, because that means the nerve root itself is being aggravated. So when people come in, um, so say they come in and go, I have pain down the front of my thigh, well, that's going to be maybe the L4 nerve that's probably causing that or one of the okay. L2 or L3 nerves. Yeah. So that's what I see most commonly yeah. is that kind of Because I know stuff. a lot of people, they're like, oh, I have, you know, the pain shooting mm-hmm. down my leg, and everyone's like, it's sciatic. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> even other physicians see that a lot, yeah. Yeah, even other physicians, they say the exact same thing. I have seen true sciatica. Um, sometimes that piriformis muscle that sits right on top of the sciatic nerve mm-hmm. can get tight and can put some pressure back there. Mm-hmm. Um, even in like the PMNR world, that's kind of a controversial. Controversial? Right. Can we really get? <laughs> that's kind of a controversial topic. Some people believe that piriformis syndrome exists, and people don't. I kind okay. of tend to sit in the middle of it. I think in certain cases it's accurate, and sometimes it's not. Um, I certainly think that if you have a big giant wallet and you sit on top of it all the time, <laughs> right. it's going to put pressure right yeah. on top of that nerve. Right. So. That I definitely believe. <laughs> um, and, you know, with pregnancies and things like that, some of that stuff can aggravate the sciatic nerve, too. So um, the sacroiliac joint is also back there. That can also cause a very similar type of pain where you get pain in the joint sheets down the back side of the leg. Mm-hmm. So it can be kind of a mimicker and behave like some of those other things, too. And what's your typical treatment for people who, who either have sciatic, true sciatic, or, or come in and, you know, complain of that? Um, so, so the first thing I'm going to try to do is probably put them in physical therapy. Okay. My, my first goal is to try to get them in rehab because from a long-term standpoint, that's what's going to help them more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if the pain is severe or they're having a hard time functioning, sleeping, whatever, um, you know, I might do an injection along with the therapy. Okay. Um, if it's, so if it's true sciatic pain, mm-hmm. you can actually try to do an injection under ultrasound where you okay. try to kind of inject back into that area yeah. mm-hmm. um, and release some of that muscle tissue and settle things down. Um, the scarier part is, as a resident, <laughs> we would do those blindly oh, and go, all right, we think we're kind of in the right spot. <laughs> I look back at that now and it terrifies me. Um, and I got really lucky because I did a lot of those as a resident. I never had any bad outcomes, thank goodness. Um, I had one guy who was a resident with who did hit the sciatic nerve, and the person wound up with, like, this horrific, it was awful. Oh, and another part is when you hit the sciatic nerve, we have anesthetic in there. Mm. So the whole leg was, like, not the guy oh, was, like, dragging his leg. It was terrible. Oh, and it's, it self-resolves once the anesthetic it's like Block, though, almost, but it's much. still a really terrifying thing when you're a resident. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Like, oh, 
Oh, just just paralyzed yeah, yeah. leg. I just, I just broke this poor man. Um, <laughs> so we used to do those blindly, and like I said, now we do them under ultrasound, which is much safer. Right. Um, yeah. You feel much better doing that. <laughs> um, if it's if it's more nerve root pain, then we'll do something like an epidural steroid injection. Okay. And then I usually pick that around wherever the level I think their pain is at. So if they have an L4 and L5 nerve irritation, I'll do those two levels. Okay. Um, I don't do injections anymore. I did them as a resident. Um, we have plenty of guys here that do them. So yeah. them <laughs> you don't have to do it. I let them go down that path. Um, you know, the other thing, so so say we try, usually with injections, we tell people you can do three of them a year if you need them. And the decision to repeat them is always dependent upon how well they do. So there's no set time frame other than two weeks. I give people two weeks after the injection to see if they've responded or not because it takes about, a you know, kind of a minimum of two weeks to really kind of see if they're doing well. Mm-hmm. Um if I have somebody who comes back in two weeks and, and they're kind of in the gray zone, I call it, where you're like 20 to 40% better, maybe even 50%. Some of those people are like, eh, you know, I don't know if this worked or not. As long as they respond, I know we're in the right area. Right. So we'll consider going in and doing a second one kind of at that. Because sometimes if you stack them, you can have some potentially better benefit. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes in and they tell me they're 80% better, I put them in therapy and I tell them, that's okay. Let's let's hold off on any further injections right. and steroids and using these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, they, I have one guy, he comes in once a year like clockwork. We do one injection a year, and I don't see him again until the next year. Okay. And it's been that way for five or six years now. He's a regular. Yeah, he's very um, very di- diligent with his home exercises. He's active cyclist so when you have somebody like that who's really you know works out well and, yeah. and does all these other things keeps his weight at a good point i mean those are the easy ones mm-hmm. so actually they listen to you <laughs> yeah what you say <laughs> they, do, they do what they're supposed to and i'm not a very good patient either so i won't, I won't, I won't judge i won't judge my patients right. but um but i will say you know when you have somebody like that those are the people that do the best yeah. people mm-hmm. that stay active and they're still doing other things right. so Awesome. Well, I think that's our time. Yeah. So thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That was a great job by Haley, Michaela, and Marissa. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Scrub Life. Please follow us on Facebook um, and Twitter and stay tuned to future episodes. Uh, we have three additional episodes that will continue in this series, uh, that will continue to publish this summer. Um, if you ever have any suggestions for upcoming episodes that you would like to hear, please reach us at the scrub life podcast at outlook.com. Uh, And share this episode, share our podcast with anyone that you think might uh, find it interesting or want to learn more about surgery. Again, my name is Chris Blevins. Thank you for supporting us. Have a wonderful end to your week, and we will see you again very soon.